Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Timothy Steele II. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thank you for tuning in each week. We take a look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday Divine Service. Today we have an opportunity to look at God's victory of life over death. I can't think of a better topic to deal with as we live in a world full of panic, a world full of fear, a world that seems to be overcome with this um, uh, worry and anxiety with regard to death. So what does God say about death? Well, God laughs at death, and he speaks a word or as several places in the scriptures say, God moves his finger and his mighty work is done. Vicar, the gospel reading for the 16th Sunday after Trinity, Luke 7, 11 to 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Okay, there you have it. Short and sweet. Luke seven eleven to 17. Jesus and a miracle. There are many different types of miracles in Scripture that are recorded for us. We have miracles of nature where storms are calmed, uh, things of that uh, type. We have many miracles of healing where blind people receive their sight, where the deaf hear, where the lame are walking. And we have some miracles that are really the greatest miracle that you can get as a precursor to the mother of all miracles on Easter Sunday, miracles of resurrection. Pastor, at the beginning of our text, Luke 7, verse 11, it says, soon afterward. Uh, soon after what? You know, I know in uh, Luke 6, we have the Sermon on the Plain. And earlier on in Luke 7, we have a different kind of a miracle, a very dramatic miracle uh, as well. But uh, afterwards, what's, what's going on here in Luke 7? Yeah, uh, right before this in uh, Luke chapter 7, Jesus heals a centurion's servant um, in the town of Capernaum, uh, which actually isn't that far away from Nain. And so it also then gives you kind of a geographic uh, 
idea of the way that Jesus is traveling. He help goes help from, us out. Where where are we talking about? North, south, east, west yeah. of Jerusalem? So Capernaum would be um, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the northwestern corner of that sea. And then Nain would be a town that's... Um, Headed up to the west of there a little bit uh, around the area of Nazareth. It's close to the area where, uh, for example, during the Crusades that the Battle of Hattin, where the Christians lost to Saladin, took place. I think there was the movie, uh, what's that called, with uh, Orlando Bloom? Kingdom of Heaven. Kingdom of Heaven that talks about the Battle of Hattin. Nain isn't terribly far away from that location or the town of Nazareth. It's at the foot of a little hill there. There's still a Muslim community that lives there, and then there's a separate uh, Jewish community uh, that's um, uh, the uh, settlements that we're always talking about in the news that's built there as well. And so it's in that general area. But uh, he healed the uh, centurion's servant, which I think is a big thing uh, since he's not uh, a Jewish person, and then after that uh, is when he walks by the town of Nain. Okay, and so we have the disciples and a great crowd with him. What's what's up with this big crowd? <clears throat> well, it's kind of like the beginning of the movie Godfather Part Two, where you have the funeral <laughs> procession. That's Just going like on. that. That's it, exactly what I was. Saying. And, and it, if you watched the first part of the Godfather Part Two, except for the. Uh, a mafia hit and murder that takes place during that funeral. That's the kind of thing that you should picture in your head. There's a great crowd of people that are there mourning the loss of this man who are going with his mother to the burial. It's uh, the community supporting this woman in her time of difficulty and trial. Okay, as they drew near to the gate of the town, and again, this is Nain, behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So we got this crowd following Jesus because Jesus is doing big things, and we have an even greater crowd now because of this big funeral procession that is here. What is the significance, Pastor, of the fact that she's a widow and he's the only son of this widow? Well, there's, there's several things here. Um, first off, in the ancient world, the uh, property could only be owned and passed on to the male heirs. And so uh, just like uh, in the story of Ruth, uh, this woman now is kind of left on her own. She has no way to provide for herself, uh, and she has no income. And so she's essentially become a beggar because of that uh, at the mercy and care of the people around her. Also, in the, the Jewish community, um, there's the idea that um, you do live on in your children. The promise gets passed on to your children. And so now that she has no children, uh, that idea is also kind of crushed and destroyed for her. It's considered very, um, I, I don't want to say unlucky because it's not luck, but rather uh, God may be looking down upon you when you lose your husband and your son because now that promise and that land and that uh, uh, the things that would be passed on suddenly cannot be passed on anymore within your family. So then she would go to the Social Security office and file for benefits, and uh, she would get a job where all of the other single women work, like in the factory on the assembly line. Is that what would happen to this uh, widow with uh, no children? No, it, it's, it's more that now she is... Uh, 
homeless, uh, dependent, maybe, you know, because we don't know what the community would do. She's dependent upon the community to take care of her. And if they do a good job, then, you know, she'll be fine. If they don't, then she uh, is kind of in a difficult position as far as having no home, no food, no provision. Uh, So she's now dependent upon the kindness of others for her survival. No income, no protector in this culture. Many of the women in this situation were forced to either beg or sell their bodies in order to survive. And so it's a very, very miserable plight that awaits this woman. Is that is that a fair assessment, Pastor? Yeah, um, it, it is fair. I think, um, you know, God set up a system in the, the Old Testament. We see that in Ruth where then now she can glean the fields and things like that. But, you know, people don't always take care of people the way they're supposed to. Charity isn't always there the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and so it really is a difficult situation for her. It says in our text here in verse 13, and when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her. Vicar, you just preached the sermon not too long ago, pretty much centered around that word compassion. What can you tell us about uh, the kind of compassion Jesus had and felt for her? His, his heart went out to her. I mean, in the Gospels, we certainly don't know exactly when Joseph died, but pretty soon after the uh, incident at the temple, Joseph vanishes from the narrative. And so perhaps it could be at this point that he sees her and he is reminded of his own mother who is a widow and his heart goes out to her. Whatever the case, though, he sees a woman who has lost everything, has lost her husband, has lost her son. Pastor, I love the sound of that word compassion in the Greek. Do you want to, with your, uh, with your eloquent diction, do you want to say that for our hearers? Tut, tut, my eloquent, I can't even say eloquent, <laughs> eloquent diction. Uh, the word in the Greek is splagnizomai, uh, and, uh, and it has this idea, it's an onomatopoeia, would be the, the way the word we use today in English, where it sounds like what the word is depicting. And so splagnizomai uh, is the sound that would uh, happen if a a priest or someone were to cut out the guts of an animal and splat them down onto the ground. Uh, you know, as every deer hunter knows that sound, that's the onomatopoeia. And it has to do with the idea that your guts are moved, that deep within you, you are moved and you feel something. And that's the compassion word then that is used here in the scriptures. So as Vicar said, his heart goes out to her. He's spilling his guts for her. Is Is this a an emotion-only kind of word, Pastor? Uh, Is it an emotion-only word? Yes. No, it does have that literal, uh, when you gut an animal sort of sense as well, uh, that goes along with the emotion word. So it's emotion and action. So it's more than pity. It is a pity that is moving you to do something. Yes. Okay. Yes. So uh, Jesus uh, does something. He says to her, Do not weep. Now, uh, you don't have to go to many grief counseling sessions to know that the first thing they tell you is don't tell people not to cry. So did Jesus miss that particular session of the grief counseling class in heaven? Why would Jesus tell her not to weep? 
Well, you know, if you or I were to tell someone don't cry or don't weep, that that's uh, us telling them in terms of the law, and all that does is increase guilt and and uh, wrong feeling and whatnot. But when Jesus speaks it, he's saying it as God, and in that sense, it is being said in terms of gospel. When Jesus says don't weep, it's because he's giving you the reason not to weep. He's taking care of the problem and fixing the situation, and so it does carry the gospel and uh, eternal life with it, and, and that's where we're going to see. Uh, what Jesus does here in just a minute. Okay, because Jesus not only speaks a word, but when Jesus speaks a word, there is power behind that word. Let there be light, and there was. And there was. And uh, we have have many, many places in Scripture where Jesus says, fear not, and fear is driven away. Peace be with you, and peace is brought. And here, as Jesus speaks these, you know, almost... Uh, unlikely words, do not weep. Everybody's weeping. Every, the paid mourners are wailing and weeping. There's a th- crowd, a throng that is gathered. They're all crying. They're all weeping. And Jesus does just the opposite. He says, do not weep. And when we come back from our break, we're going to see why Jesus could make this powerful statement, do not weep. This is Proclaiming the One, 16th Sunday after Trinity. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Christ, the life of all the living. We're going to see that played out for us in living color right here in Luke 7, 11 to 17. We have Jesus, who, along with a throng, uh, joins another throng, a funeral procession. Very, very sad and tragic event. The only son of a widow is dead. The funeral procession is going by. Jesus sees the woman and Jesus spills out his guts. He pours out his heart to her. He has compassion on her. And then he speaks the words, do not weep. They sound crazy. Uh, How in the world could she not be weeping at the thought not only of the death of her son, but being reminded of the death of her husband, being reminded of the plight that awaits her being completely and totally dependent upon the mercy of the community to take care of her. And if they didn't, if they sinned against God's word, uh, her plight would be even worse. Verse 14, then he, Jesus, came up up and touched the beer. Beer, buyer, uh, we've had that debate before on how to pronounce that. Yeah. Um, if you if you listen to uh, Jim Morrison and the Doors, 
uh, okay. So so last year after we had this conversation, I looked up that song yeah. by Jim Morrison, and the words that uh, that you you said are uh, our love become a funeral buyer yeah. are actually our love become a funeral pyre p y r e oh. as in the big stack of wood you burn the body on. Okay, so. Uh, you know, it's it's always uh, it's always humbling to be corrected, but um, you know, buyer, pyre, beer. You know, it's it's a it's a word game, I guess. Anyway, so explain to us what a funeral beer is, Pastor. Yeah, well, so you got to think about a body. Um, and how heavy they are. So you didn't have a casket. You didn't have a, uh, anything like that you buried people on. And so what you did is you get kind of like a, a cot or a, a stretcher sort of thing uh, where you'd lay the body out on there so that you could take it to the tomb and move the body onto the stone ledge where it would sit in the grave. And so uh, that's what this is. It's kind of like a stretcher from the old uh, mash show or uh, you know the uh, the good the bad and the ugly scene where they're at the bridge they put the uh, ammunition and the explosives onto the uh, stretcher and carry it down to the river uh, that's you the kind of thing full that this of all is. kinds of old movie references today <clears throat> yeah you know this is one of those great texts that you can do that for okay okay so um, another I mean first of all Jesus says the shocking words do not weep and then he does something even more shocking he came up and touched the beer and the bearer stood still why would it be such a shocking thing for jesus to touch the funeral beer uh, so shocking that the procession stopped immediately yeah it's against the uh Jewish uh, purity uh, rules to touch a dead body or anything that touches a dead body. It makes you ceremonially unclean. Uh, it's uh, looked down upon. It's uh, a way that God had put in place for uh, teaching the people of God that death is not a good thing. It's not something to look forward to or be positive about. Death is a result of sin, and it's bad. Um, and so touching this funeral beer uh, is a essentially making yourself unclean, taking the uncleanliness of the dead body onto yourself. And I think that's really the key here. Jesus does that and removes the sting of death by bringing it onto himself. And as we'll see later on in the Gospel of Luke, by going to the cross and dying for all of those who themselves need to die. Yes. uh, And I think it's important to note that uh, every miracle, whatever type of miracle it is, every miracle teaches us that Jesus is God because he alone is able to do these miraculous things and every miracle especially these kind of miracles point us forward to the ultimate miracle the mother of all miracles jesus victory over sin death and the grave on easter morning jesus says young man i say to you arise now he could have just said get up but he says, I say to you, arise. Is there any sig- anything specifically significant about the way Jesus speaks to bring life back into this man? 
Yeah, the the word that is used in the um, the Greek is egero, and what's unique about this particular instance is it's uh, in the passive voice as well, the passive imperative. In other words, I'm commanding you that I'm going to do this thing to you, which is a unique way to say something, right? Uh, I'm commanding you're going to do this passively. And the word egero then is the word that's used for the resurrection. Jesus uh, arises from the dead. It means get up in that regard. And so Jesus, by the power of his word, is commanding this man who has no choice but to obey passively to rise from the dead. So this uh, dead person who uh, couldn't ask Jesus into his heart, who couldn't make a decision for Jesus, he is 100% dead. He is 100% passive. Jesus speaks a powerful word, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. It wasn't like he was like in some kind of zombie apocalypse state uh, where I mean he, he's immediately alive. He's fully human once again. And then it says, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Pastor, how is that really the fulfillment of that compassion word that we heard earlier? Yeah, it's a fulfillment because uh, Jesus has taken... Uh, something that was impossible, right? Uh, when your son dies, you know he's gone forever. You won't have him around anymore, and he's completely undone it and returned things to the way that they really ought to be uh, in this in this world if there was no sin. Death has worked backwards. This man has returned to life and given back to his family who thought they had lost him forever. And that's the beauty of the gospel that we have, that Jesus uh, makes death run backwards. He restores people to life, and and he will do that for all uh, on the last day. Those of us who believe in him uh, will be resurrected into eternal life, and those who have not will be resurrected into eternal eternal death and hell, and uh, that's what God does through Jesus. You know, earlier, Vicar said that uh, perhaps Jesus is thinking about his own mother being a widow here. I can't help but think when I read these words, Jesus gave him to his mother as Jesus hung on the cross, bleeding and dying for the sins of the world. Jesus has compassion on his own mother, and he says to his mother, woman, behold your son, and to the apostle John, uh, Son, behold your mother. And so he cares uh, in an amazing way outside the box, uh, superhuman love and compassion. And this is just one one tiny little picture of a, a huge worldwide love and compassion that Jesus had. It says here, uh, fear seized them all. Pa- uh, Vicar, um, what kind of fear are we talking about? Well... Uh, for some of them, it, pro- it was probably a combination of uh, regular fear and shock of, oh, a dead person is alive again, something you don't really see every day. But also, it is a fear, it is an awe, it is a reverence towards what has just happened. I mean, it follows up saying they glorified God. A great prophet has arisen among us. They know God is at work here. And so that is expressed in their fear and their reverence and what they say and do. 
Pastor, when they glorified God and then make that confession, a great prophet has risen among us, do they realize at this point that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, that a great prophet, the Messiah, would uh, come and save the people? What, what can we tell from this particular text? Yeah, um, I'm not sure that they do completely understand. It's hard to speak across the board here. Uh, it was understood enough that people remembered it and passed the word around so that it was recorded for us by St. Luke uh, many years later. But I don't know that they understand the fullness of who Jesus is until he actually uh, raises up himself from the dead. And uh, that's really when the real knowledge of who Jesus uh, and the belief in all the words that he said comes to its fullness, uh, which is kind of a neat thing. A part of their confession is also God has visited his people. Now, that, that verb visited is a lot more than, uh, you know, Pastor Poppy and his wife go and visit the Moline family for Sunday dinner. Um, what, what is implied in this God has visited his people? Yeah, um, the word here is an interesting word. It's episkopatomai. Uh, say that three times fast, right? Uh, episkopatomai. And uh, the word means to visit in the sense that you have care for someone, you have compassion for someone. And so they're, they're saying, look, God has come down here and shown compassion and mercy and care through this great prophet in raising this man from the dead. And I imagine that uh, in the back of their minds, they're thinking about our Old Testament lesson where a similar event took place uh, with the prophet Elijah. Uh, and, and I know we'll get to that a little bit, so I don't want to give it away, but that's their comparison here. They're saying, look, just like God did through Elijah uh, in the Old Testament, so now God has done through Jesus here and now. At the end of this text, we have a little bit of a contrast in uh the Gospel of Mark specifically, when Jesus does something big like this, he always tells the people, okay, now don't tell anybody about it. And they go and tell everybody anyway. But in Matthew and Luke, we don't have that uh, don't tell anybody recorded. That's often the scholars refer to that as the Mark and secret and all that kind of stuff. Uh, verse 17, any thoughts or comments on that verse, Pastor? Well, I, I think... Um the reality is is that when Jesus is doing these things, which seem to be beyond uh, human ability, it, it is spreading around. It is gossiped about. And you have to understand the way the world worked uh, back then. There was no 24-hour cable news uh, show where a bunch of talking heads told you what you're supposed to think and believe, but rather the people who saw this as they were walking around and traveling around uh, to their different uh, stations in life, they would always be passing around. You wouldn't believe this. This guy raised somebody from the dead down in Nain uh, last Thursday, you know, and and so the news spreads in that way, and it spreads quickly so that soon everybody hears in some way, shape, or form about Jesus. And, and that and prepares the, the Good Friday death and, and crucifixion of him. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, this is in the first half of uh, the Gospel of Luke. Usually Luke is divided. Uh, the first half goes up to about nine 
51 or 52, where Jesus sets his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. So here, Jesus is uh, you know, almost kind of random or willy-nilly, not to him, but apparently to us, moving around, teaching, preaching, doing miracles. And in a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to fix his eyes on Jerusalem. He's working his way there specifically where the ultimate victory over death will take place good friday and easter sunday we need to take a break when we come back we'll look at first Kings 17 17 to 24 proclaiming the one don't change that dial you are listening to k and LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the 16th Sunday after Trinity. In our first two segments, we looked at the gospel reading for Trinity 16, Luke 7, 11 to 17. Jesus miraculously rising from the dead, the son of the widow of Nain. He showed compassion on her. He showed his mastery over sin, death, and the devil. He speaks a word. And the young man sits up and is given back to his mother. Our Old Testament reading for the 16th Sunday after Trinity is kind of an Old Testament precursor to the miracle that we just studied. It was uh, a week or two ago that we looked at the previous 10 verses or so of 1 Kings chapter 17. We had Elijah, Elijah, excuse me, Elijah visiting the woman, uh, the widow, the uh, with her son. He uh, commands the widow to take the little dab of flour and oil that she has and feed him before herself. It was an act of great faith. God miraculously keeps them all three alive. The prophet the woman and her son, because the flour and the oil don't run out. An amazing miracle. And you think that that's pretty much the end of the story, but it's not. No one sees what's coming next. Vicar, 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came back into him again, and he revived. 
And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Okay, we don't uh, we don't see this coming. We uh, see this miraculous resurrection, and we see God's compassion through Elijah on this particular woman. Um, Pastor, it seems kind of odd that God would go to such extreme lengths, the miracle of the flour and the oil, only to let this son die, uh, doesn't say exactly what the illness was, just that his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Um, is he really dead? Yes. Okay. Dead, dead as a doornail. Dead, um, dead, dead. You know that there are some <clears throat> critics of Scripture who are always looking to tear apart the Word of God. They look at this particular text and say, you know, he wasn't really dead. And, you know, Elijah took him upstairs and, you know, by, by prostrating himself three times over him, you know, he was just giving him like mouth-to-mouth resuscitation or he was uh, giving him CPR or something like that. And, you know, maybe there was something medical that went on here, but it wasn't really uh, an absolute resurrection. How would you how would you respond to people who would uh, try to try to tear down or tear apart uh, this particular word of God? Well, I would drive them back to the text where it says there was no breath left in him, and say when an animal or a creature or a human has no breath left, that means they are dead. And then even the understanding of the mother who says, what do you have against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And I'd say, look what the text says. And people back then knew when someone was dead, probably better than we do because uh, we always have this idea that we can resuscitate and bring someone back. And they don't have that. When you're dead, you're dead. Uh, and uh, they both acknowledge that this boy is dead. Even um, the word of Elijah, uh, as he is praying to God, uh, what have you done? You have killed this woman's son uh, is the word that he uses. So multiple times it says in the text very clearly, the boy is dead, dead. So attempts to read something into this uh, as a uh, resuscitation rather than a resurrection are foolish and contrary to the clear words that are recorded for us in the Bible. Yeah, it's really actually kind of foolish in itself to to bring a modern idea to look back through, um, you know, I'm just going to say it, you know, 2,700 years of history and try to add something to the text that's not there is is kind of almost foolish in itself. It's uh, an idea that we're smarter than those people and that we know better and that uh, uh, whoever wrote this down just uh, just didn't get it and we know better. It'd be like looking at the uh, uh, the moon and trying to see uh, you know a, a dime on the surface of it from the earth. It's uh, darn near impossible to actually do that well. The uh, comment by the woman, and you, you said it before, um, you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. How is that, uh, in a sense, a pretty solid 
theological statement with regard to the reality and consequences of sin. Yeah, she gets it, doesn't she? Uh, And maybe uh, we need to repent and get it a little bit clearer as well. She knows that the reason people die is because of sin. Uh, Now, she doesn't have it quite right in the sense that she thinks maybe her sin has caused the death of her son, but she connects sin and death together. We don't do that anymore. We think... um, Sin is just the nat, or sorry, death is just the natural state of things, and that all things die, and that uh, that's just the way it always has been, and that's not the case. God desires people to live forever, and uh, the reason that we don't is because of sin, and this woman understands that, um, and we need to understand that as well. The reason that every single person ever has died is because of sin. It might be brought about through cancer or, uh, you know, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or COVID-19. But behind all of that, the real 100% reason for every single death that has ever happened is sin. The prayer of Elijah, or at least a portion of the prayer that, that, that is recorded for us in verse 20, seems uh, rather significant as well. O Lord my God, Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned? And then in verse 21, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Thoughts on the prayer that is recorded for us here in 1 Kings chapter 17. Well, it begins with the confession of faith uh, that God is God and that uh, the Lord is uh, the God that uh, Elijah worships. It's as if he's saying, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty and Jesus Christ the Son and in the Holy Spirit. He's confessing the reality of God, and then uh, he's asking God to do the very thing that God desires to do, and that's to return death to life, to take care of sin and to cover it over. Uh, And uh, in a sense... This prayer is looking ahead to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, and trusting that God is going to undo death, just as he promised in the very beginning to Adam and Eve, um, that uh, in the offspring of the woman, um, death will be undone. In verse 22, it says, The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came back into him again, and he revived. Um, doesn't the Lord listen to all prayers? Uh, this seems like kind of an unusual way to record this for us because, I don't know, um, if I pray now for the resurrection of one of my dead relatives, does that mean that's going to happen? How, how can we uh, understand verse 22, Pastor? Well, God always listens to prayer, but he doesn't always uh do what we want. He doesn't always um, acquiesce to our requests. Um, And in this particular instance, he does to teach us to look forward to Jesus, who's going to do this for everyone on the last day. And so we might pray, you know, uh, you were talking about your loved ones, right? I know your mom passed away a couple years ago. 
you, you pray for God to bring her back to life. She, he's not going to do it right now at this time, but he has promised to do it on the last day and to raise all people from the dead uh, and to put their bodies and souls back together perfectly. And uh, for those who believe in Jesus, to give them eternal life. And for those who do not, to uh, send them to hell forever uh, with a place where God is not. And so, in a sense, he will listen to the prayer, but it's not on our time or at our uh desire. Rather, it is at his own good time for his own purposes. And we always keep that in the back of our minds when we uh, pray. You know, we, we teach our catechumens that God answers prayer in three ways, yes, no, and wait. Never maybe, never a God of doubt. And that's a case where, you know, when we want the life returned of our loved ones, the answer is wait, because it will happen. God promises it on the last day. I want to end with that verse 24, the confession of the woman at the end. She does not claim that Elijah is God. She does not try to make him the fourth person of the Trinity or anything like that. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Why is that a significant uh, confession, Pastor? Well, she believes in God, first off, like you said, not in Elijah, and the thing that's brought her to God is the word of God spoken by the mouth of the prophet Elijah. And this again shows Elijah and now this woman to be Lutherans, Um, and uh, just as we are, we believe the word of the pastor is the word of God, not that the pastor's God, but the word that he speaks is God's word, so long as he's being faithful to the scripture. So when uh, Pastor Poppy says, I forgive give you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that it really truly is happening, uh, just as the Word of the Lord says. We even have this in our um, our confession and absolution in the hymnal. We say, do you believe that my word is not mine but the Lord's? Uh, and we say yes, and then we say, let it be done for you as you have asked, and then we forgive their sins. It's that same idea. The word of the pastor is the word of God when the pastor's being faithful in that way. And we can have confidence not only in the marvelous words of the absolution, but when the pastor speaks and says, this is my body, this is my blood, that uh, it is a word of truth and that bread and wine really is the body and blood of Jesus. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They can have confidence that this is a word of truth, a washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. And so God's word is truth, and it is not to elevate the preacher or the teacher, but it is to elevate... um, and to glorify the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to take a break. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Pastor. I was just going to say, the, the thing drives us again to Jesus, who is the Word of God. And so, in a sense, Jesus has raised this boy from the dead, just as in the Gospel lesson. Amen, amen. When we come back, we're going to look at our epistle reading, Ephesians 3, 13 to 21. Don't change that dial. Nebraska. 
Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship Sunday morning, 8 and 1030 with family Bible study in between. We also worship every Wednesday evening at 630. All of our worship services are broadcast live on KNNALP 95.7 right here in Lincoln, Nebraska. If you're outside of our listening area, you can download the app. You can go to www.thecross957.org and you can listen there. Check out our archives. We have all kinds of wonderful theological programming for you, and we always appreciate your feedback. Vicar, the epistle reading for... Trinity 16, Ephesians 3, 13-21. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. 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 A great, uh, a great text for us to be looking at here, Ephesians 3. It almost sounds like that should be the end of Ephesians there with that great doxological verse in uh, verse, uh, Ephesians 3, verse 21. Pastor, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing these words. What is Paul suffering? Yeah, uh, well, um, you know, Paul suffers quite a bit, actually. Um, and I, I don't think we really, really uh, grasp, but he talks about the one time he's, uh, uh, just to summarize it in one quick sentence, he's suffering persecution for uh, being a Christian. He's suffering it from uh, the former friends that are Jews in Jerusalem who uh, uh, put him down all the time for what he believes, even eventually get him arrested and sent off to Rome. He's facing persecution by Roman rulers, uh, for example, arrested in the city of Philippi and imprisoned overnight. He's suffering uh, persecution by Satan, who uh, is always there uh, trying to uh, stop him from preaching the gospel and, and believing it. Uh, he's suffering persecution from um, uh, our sinful lives where we get sick and, uh, you know, he's shipwrecked, he's uh, uh, dealing with difficulties, he's beaten, all these things. That's what he's suffering, and it's all because he's a Christian. How is the suffering of Paul for my glory? Well, the thing that is the glory for you is not that Paul is suffering, but that in everything Paul teaches and preaches and proclaims, he's pointing you to Jesus, who is the one who suffered for all of us, uh, even for Paul. Paul never is tooting his own horn in that regard, but he's always bringing Christ to the people who will listen. His He preaches Christ crucified, uh, to quote his own words. And so, 
when Paul is suffering these things to make sure that you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the way that his suffering benefits you. Uh, Even though he is facing persecution, you get to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore you are saved. And in that sense... Not to toot our own horns, right, as pastors, but pastors are the same way. Uh, Pastors deal with a lot of difficulties all to make sure that you can hear the gospel. Uh, And uh, uh, even even in this world today, it's not to the extreme magnitude of Paul's sufferings, but there is still suffering in the office of the pastor. So uh, watch out for that, Vicar. Uh, Things to look forward to. Yeah, there you go. They don't tell you that when you're admitted to the seminary. Uh, Verse 15. from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Um, and it's, and it's, the reference there is the Father, the fa- God the Father. How, how is that a, sig- a theologically significant verse, Pastor? Well, uh, it, it tells you that God knows who everybody in the world is, and uh, we know this all the way back from uh, uh, Genesis. We have what the section called the Table of Nations, and so uh, Noah uh, gets out of the ark and he goes down. By the way, did you know that uh, 20 miles from Mount um, Ararat in Turkey, uh, there's a town that's, um, what's it called, Noxviegen or something like that, that is the Noah come down place. That's what the town name means. And it was uh, mentioned all the way back in the time of Josephus as being named that, and it still is today, and it's in Armenia, I believe. And so it's one of those interesting things. There's a city that's called Noah came down here place um, near Mount Ararat. I don't remember how I got there, but... um, uh, Noah, after he gets off the ark, all the descendants, uh, his descendants are named, and they are the nations that came to exist in the ancient world, and all of us can trace our descendancy to one of those families. So, I'm, I'm reminded of that passage in the book of Acts where it says, uh, all people on earth, um, you know, they're at the right place at the right time, and it's no accident God is in control and charge of who you are and where you live and all these things uh, that's emphasized for us here in verse 15. Now it's our text starts out. Don't lose heart. And then in verse 16, it says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. How is the, the continuing life of the Christian a continual strengthening by God the Father through the Holy Spirit in our inner being when we are tempted to lose heart. Well, um, when we are tempted to lose heart, uh, what does the Christian do? The Christian goes to church and hears the word, and that word strengthens their faith and receives the Lord's Supper, which grants forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation, and remembers their baptism, where they were clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness and adopted into God's eternal kingdom. And so in those ways, by coming into contact with the word and the sacraments, the Christian is strengthened even as the world continually attacks and tries to tear down their faith. And this is why it is so important to be in church even when maybe it seems dangerous or difficult or hard or uh, boring or whatever, it's important to be in church where God gives his gifts so that you can hear them, receive them, and increase in faith and trust. And we are strengthened and uh, encouraged in uh, receiving those gifts of God. Verse 17 says that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, Pastor, you know as well as I do that 
sometimes Lutherans get pretty nervous with this Jesus in my heart kind of talk. But here it is, right here in the Holy Scriptures. What is the proper way for a Christian to understand this Jesus in me kind of talk? It is that Jesus is the object which our faith looks to. Um, he's the thing that we fear, love, and trust above all other things. He's the name that is upon our lips uh, when we uh, use God's name properly. He's the one we go to church to hear about. Uh, and so Jesus in our heart is all that way. It is that he is the object, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the way we have that faith, then again, is not by our own works or inviting him to live in our heart. Rather, the Holy Spirit invades with his word and sacrament and uh, uh, establishes Christ within us. I love how you put that. And it's interesting that in this very section, the head and the heart are connected. Uh, so often when people use this heart language, uh, it is only emotion. It is only a feeling. It is only like a, like a giant divine warm fuzzy. But Paul goes on and he talks about uh, that you may have strength to comprehend. That's a head talk. Uh, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know knowledge, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is this uh, comprehend, this knowing, this knowledge talk? What kind of knowledge is Paul pointing us to here? Well, I, I guess the thing we could say is that it is the knowledge that is the dogma of the Christian church, the basic catechesis, uh, catechism. Uh, and so, you know, we would summarize it as, you know, the uh, Ten Commandments, you know, the creed, you know, the basics about baptism, you know, the basics about uh, the Lord's Supper, you know, confession and absolution, you know, the Lord's Prayer. Not that these things, just having a head knowledge is enough, but rather these things uh, then work what they're supposed to in pointing you and delivering you uh, to Jesus Christ, who is then, back to the sentence before that, the object of our faith. These things uh, create and sustain that faith, and as God is working in us and through us, he drives away our fears, he uh, strengthens our hearts and he gives us a confidence to be able to proclaim with Paul and all the saints for all time now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a marvelous doxological statement. What a marvelous confession of faith. One that I hope and pray would be on all of our lips on a continuing basis. Vicar, do you want to bring things to a close on this uh, examination of the 16th Sunday after Trinity by praying the collect of the day? Let us pray. O oh Lord. We pray that your grace may always go before and follow after us, that we may continually be given to all good works. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. We don't always do this, but Pastor, uh, unpack that line in the collect for us, would you please, that um, we are asking God for grace that we may be given to all good works. How is that the absolute proper order of things? 
Yeah, the uh, good works must follow faith, which is given to us by grace uh, through the Word of God. And so uh, we get the order in the correct. We put the uh, locomotive at the front and the caboose at the end, uh, good works being the caboose and uh, God's work of faith in the beginning. Amen, amen, amen. For Pastor Moline and Vicar Steele, I am Pastor Clint Poppy. Thank you for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One. Sunday morning when you get up, read your paper, drink your coffee. Please, please, please pray for your pastors. And most of all, go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ. We'll see you again next week.